So I'm going to ask you to do, some, it's a little bit different this morning, um, to turn to Matthew 1, but also to Luke 1. I'm going to read Matthew 1, um, and then we're going to reference back and forth to Luke chapter 1. So Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. While you're making your way there, uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus this morning. For those of you who have been keeping track, that is not unusual around here. So what theologians have done through centuries now is that in order to understand Jesus well, they essentially divide their thinking into two separate but related categories. One of those they call the person of Christ, and the other the work of Christ. So the person of Christ and the work of Christ, and remember I've said they're separate, it's kind of a, you know, an arbitrary division there just to help them think in categories, but they're related Because if you think of the person of Christ, you're thinking about who He is. And if you think about the work of Christ, you're thinking about what He's done. And they're related because who you are, what you do, comes out of who you are. You're going to operate out of who you are. So it's who Jesus is and what He's done. And the Bible teaches, this is very important, because the Bible teaches that that Jesus is unique. Nobody is like him. I don't mean unique in the way we use unique. We use the word unique not to mean the only. We use the word unique to mean rare so often, right? In other words, um, this person is unlike a lot of other people. Nobody else is like Jesus. The Bible teaches that he is unique. Nobody else is like him. So I want you to think about as Jesus comes into the world... And people would attempt to understand, you know, how do, we, how do we think about him? How do we understand who he is and what he's done? They, they would operate from two existing categories. And the first of those would be God. There's God, he's holy, he's very God, and he's up there. And then the second category is man, us, right? So there's man, uh, he's, while made in God's image, very sinful, very limited, and down here, two categories. God and man, holy, sinful, infinite, limited, right? Two categories. And, and as they attempted to understand Jesus, he's not properly understood a third category. Some of the early thinkers, um, you know, coined this little phrase to refer to him, okay, if God, man, what is Jesus? Well, we think, wrongly, that he's a tertium quid, Latin for a third this, a third thing, a third category. And their thinking went something like this. Well, he doesn't seem to really be God because he does all this man stuff. And he doesn't seem to really be man because he does all this God stuff. And so maybe he's somewhere in between this tertium quid, this third category. Nope. Jesus is not in a third category. He's the fullness of those two existing categories. He is fully God and fully man. He embodies every bit of it. There's no, no part of Jesus that is not God and no part of Jesus that is not man. He's not a hybrid. He's not a compound. Fully God and fully man. Now, a key piece to us understanding that is the virgin birth. We find that in this passage. And what I want to talk about today is not so much an exposition like what we normally do, but two things. The, uh, the observation of the virgin birth, that it is. 
It is represented, it is asserted in Scripture, and it is a bold assertion. So the observation of it and the significance of it, I might say why it is, right? So what, is it, what does it matter and what does it mean? So those are the two main things that we're going to talk about. Let's go now, and like I said, keep, keep a finger in Luke chapter 1, but we're going to be looking at Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. This is God's Word. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, this is God's word. Let's look at those two things that we talked about, that it is and why it is, an observation of it uh, as, a, as a reality in Scripture. And what it means, what's its significance. So that, the observation is the first part. What do we see in the Bible? Well, this has been met with uh, modern, in, in the modern era, skepticism. You know, uh, especially if you look from Western civilization, if you go to the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, the idea that the virgin birth would be a reality was something that people tended, or scholars, let's put it that way, um, tended to look at and say, I don't think so, a denial of that. Um, and, and the reasoning was something like, well, we don't see so much of the supernatural, we don't want to be embarrassed in front of our friends at school, so we would go, this seems generally unlikely, pregnancy has a natural, commonly known cause. Now, just to do a little bit of the rationale now and a little bit later, keep in mind, whenever you see the singular significance of an event, the idea that it's unlikely is part of the reason that, that, that uh, God does it that way to highlight its significance. Like the idea that somebody couldn't get pregnant or the idea that somebody would be raised from the dead. And if you go, that normally doesn't happen. Right, that's part of the point. He's doing something special in order for you to pay attention and see the significance of it. But anyway, the, the, the notion, the reality of the virgin birth has been met with some skepticism. By people saying, essentially, this seems unlikely. Now, keep in mind that bad thinking about God almost always has a motive. In other words, there are very few honest mistakes when it comes to bad thinking about God over the long term. And here, it's essentially embarrassment. We're afraid of what other people think. Um... It seems too impossible. What will our friends in academia say? What will our sophisticated friends say? And that sort of thing. What do we see in the text? Let me give you just the way it lays out in Scripture, and we'll go Matthew and Luke, okay? Um, let me give you four observations that assert the reality of the virgin birth and, and how it lays out. 
The first one is this. It is, the virgin birth is revealed explicitly in two texts. Foretold in Isaiah 7.14, um, but in Matthew 1 verses 18 through 25, and Luke 1 verses 26 through 38. So there it is, laid out explicitly, and that's enough. The Bible says it, if the Bible says it in one place, that's enough. But the Bible here says it in two places. The second observation is that it was revealed to both parents. I mean, it is one thing if one side says, hey, this is how this happened, but if they both agree, that's another corroborating feature. Right? It was revealed to, one, to both parents. It's not one person's view. In Matthew's account, it's revealed to Joseph. And in Luke's account, it's revealed to Mary. Third observation, it was revealed by God, not just some so-and-so. Okay, so in Matthew, if you look at verse 20, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. That means something. That's a, that's a different kind of messenger than uh, just somebody who has an opinion on the street, somebody who bumps into you, even a well-meaning friend. This is an angel of the Lord who appears to Joseph in a dream. This is from the Lord. And in Luke, if you look at that, it starts off early on in verse 26. The angel Gabriel engages Mary uh, over a pretty long conversation about this. Okay, so you go, it, was reve- it is revealed explicitly in two separate places to both parents, and it's revealed by God. And in both cases, number four, it is revealed that God miraculously caused Mary's pregnancy. So in verse 20 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, uh, in the dream, the angel says to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, both of them know that they have not had a a sexual relationship. And lest you think that, uh, I mean, this has been going on for generations, that a, a man in a situation like that might be wronged and might deem you know, uh, his course of action to be the noble thing. I'm going to do something here that will be the noble thing. And what he's told here is, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. He's not taking the noble route. He's taking the called route. This is exactly what God has told him to do. And here's the rationale behind it. She is pregnant, but she's, what is conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke's account, if you follow that, it starts off early on, and in verse 31, Gabriel makes an announcement to Virgin Mary uh, that she is going to give birth. And, you know, the news hits her as something of a shock uh, for, you know, obvious reasons, right? And so she asks this question in verse 34, how? And she's very particular about it, and an angel isn't somebody that you would hide the details from. So she says, okay, if I'm pregnant, if I'm going to be pregnant, how, since I'm a virgin, since I haven't had sexual relations? And this is Gabriel's response in verse 35. Remember, our point here is that what we find in Scripture is that her pregnancy is miraculously caused by God. Gabriel's answer in verse 35 is, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit does a work in Mary supernaturally um, to cause this pregnancy. Now, ask this question. Remember, what we're doing now is we're just, observe, uh, we're just making the observation that if you take an honest reading of the New Testament, it makes this assertion. 
The virgin birth is a reality. How did Jesus Christ come into the world? He came into the world um, through a, a mom, human being, real person, but she was a virgin. No earthly father. Why would the Bible make such a bold assertion? Well, simply put, because God does something bold here. If you were to ask me, um, do I believe the virgin birth happened? Would I affirm that? Well, sure, I would. And let me just give you a framework for the way I think about it. Um, If... And I'll make a caveat. If, if you happen to be here, and you're certainly welcome here, but if you happen to be here and you're not a believer, and you're in that category of kind of curious, but you don't believe that there is a God. Let's just say you're in that category. You don't believe that there is a God, and somewhere on the spectrum of all this stuff, you don't believe the Bible, you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, and so on, right? If you don't believe any of that, that's a different conversation. However, if you are in the category and you believe that God exists, and that we, uh, that his son is Jesus, I'll just ask you, here's my framework, and I'll just ask you to follow along and think this through. If you believe that, don't you believe that matter came from God, that, that God created everything from his will and his word, ex nihilo. Everything came out of nothing because of God's plan and purpose, and he executed that by speaking it into existence. Do you believe that that God created everything that exists out of nothing by his own power and that the universe is his. Do you believe that? And then the second thing, do you believe that, that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead? And if you believe those two things, what's the problem with the virgin birth? I mean, how hard is that as though something were difficult or impossible for God? So just put it out there that the, uh, in spite of what your friends at school might think, or our friends at school might think, the Bible asserts the virgin birth as this reality. This happened. This is exactly what happened. And the way it lays it out is that you've got these two separate accounts to both parents by God, by God's representative, um, specifically say, stating that the Holy Spirit has done this. The follow-on question is, okay, but Why? What's the significance of this? What, is it, what does it mean, and how are we to understand it? So, little, another little proviso language from me here. There's a very good systematic theologian named Wayne Grudem, and I don't normally just take somebody else's framework and put it in, but that's what I've done here. And I did it just for one little reason, and that is because he's smarter and better at this than I am. So I just took it and inserted it, right? So... Um, But anyway, he lays out the framework like this. But you could look at any other good, solid theologian, and they're going to do the same thing. They're basically going to point to the the same uh, values and and truth propositions that I'm going to bring up here that are out of Grudem's framework. Let me give you three things. What what does it mean? Uh, What does the virgin birth mean? Why does it matter? Well, the first thing is this. It shows that salvation has to come from the Lord. What does this tell us? It, it has to come from beyond ourselves, us as a group, right? Not, not humanity is not going to do this. What we find in the coming of Jesus is not simply that a champion emerged, but that a champion was sent. Um, the virgin birth is this unmistakable reminder that salvation is brought about by God's power, not by ours. 
Not through human effort, but through the work of God, through the supernatural work of God. If you remember back in Genesis, in chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that the seed of woman would destroy the serpent. And he did. But when you read the account, one of the things that's interesting, um, and one shouldn't talk bad about Jesus' mama. I'm, you know, I'm not going to get in line to do that. But what you should find in, as you read the accounts is that there's not something particularly about Mary that you would say, oh, well, she's uniquely capable. That isn't what the text says at all. She's simply chosen by God, and he's going to do his great work through her. She's blessed um, like you are in so many ways to be used by God to do what he plans to do um, in history and to accomplish his will. She, she wasn't in that sense special. She was special because she was chosen, not because she was so capable. And God worked through her as he promised. Let me give you a, a, a scripture's like little truncated way of stating this. In Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Not a champion emerged, or finally, after all these years, one of us was able to produce somebody who could accomplish this feat. No, in his plan, when the time was right, when God had planned, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, um, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Uh, salvation is going to happen. It has to come from the Lord. Second thing, uh, you know, you see in this that we need a representative. It, the second thing is it made possible the uniting of the full deity and the full humanity uh, uh, in one person. Full deity and full humanity in one person. Like I said before, you take those two existing categories, there's God and man. Those are essentially the two existing categories. God and man, and you tended to go, well, I could see one or the other, but it's really hard to see both together. But that's exactly what you see in Jesus. I want you to think, Grudem walks through this, but I want you to think, if God had sent Jesus into the world as a fully formed human, you know, a complete human, for lack of a better way of describing it, let's just play pretend that you know, Jesus is adult, and he's fully formed, and he's parachuted in to our experience. It'd be very difficult for us to see him as fully human. If It would seem like he just made a cameo in disguise. Well, there are lots of ways of explaining this. The way I'll explain it to you, for you adults, um, if you haven't gone through junior high, uh, get ready. You know, we're praying for you. It's one of the reasons the church exists is to help you through that. Um, if you are in junior high, our hearts are with you. You're probably exasperating us at the moment, but you will outgrow this. We do love you. If you have been through junior high, part of what makes you you is that you survive that mess, right? I mean, you looked at yourself in the mirror and you went, oh, no, right? Um, and the reason is you're kind of not done. And uh, you're going somewhere, but you know, you're not quite all there. And then the way kids treat you at school and your own immaturity, what you find um, you know, uh, funny, and it's impossible for you not to find funny. I remember getting in trouble in junior high because I laughed at things that were funny that I shouldn't have laughed at. You know, all those things that go on, how like, you, know, you see a girl and she smiles at you, and instead of like, going, hey, how are you doing, right? You just turn like really red and say something stupid. You know, all those things that happen in junior high. If Jesus didn't go through 
the learning, growing, dealing with people that both makes you who you are and are some of the scars and difficulties you've had to overcome, you would tend to think, how is he fully human? You didn't have to go through the process of learning and growing and identifying with us, especially in dealing with ourselves and the people around us. Because we're not just talking about capability. We're not just talking about learning how to write or learning how to walk or learning how to talk. We're talking about the complications, the real complexity in terms of dealing with ourselves and dealing with the people around us. And some of them are the people closest to us. So on, on that side of it, if he wasn't born into the world this way, we'd have a really difficult time seeing him as fully human. On the other hand, if he had two human parents, it would it'd be really difficult for us to grasp this reality. How, how would he have come from God? It would seem like only a human nature was possible. But in the virgin birth, we see both. Humanity, a real birth into the race, and deity, a conception by the Holy Spirit. The uniting of full humanity and full deity all in one person. And you need that because you need a representative. Okay. The third thing. It makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Um, how is it that Jesus was born into a race like ours in which you're a sinner and 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 you're a sinner and, you're a sinner and, you're, and I could go and I would hit every person in the room and finally to me, right? And we don't have that much time. But literally everybody, everybody born into the human race is represented in Adam categorically yeah, okay, you demonstrate this by your conduct. You're motivated by your nature. But cate categorically, forensically, you're represented under Adam by his fall. So that, for example, Romans 5.19 says, By the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. You're a sinner by nature and by choice. You're a sinner categorically because your representative fell and you fell in him. So how is it possible? That somebody born into this race would be the exception to the rule. And in this case, we see it in the virgin birth. The, this, un, this otherwise unbroken line of descent from Adam, you might say it's interrupted by the Holy Spirit's work here in the birth of Jesus. It's linked to the virgin birth. The Word became flesh, but not a sinner. You see that? You see that... Uh, in the virgin birth, we get this. It's not the only place that says that salvation has to come from the Lord. It is corroborated by the reality of the virgin birth. It's not the only place that we find full humanity and full deity combined, but it's corroborated by the virgin birth. And it's not the only place that talks about Christ's true humanity uh, emerging, being sent to us without inherited sin. But you see it corroborated by the virgin birth. Now let me take it a step further. If this is the reality, what should you see when you see Jesus? Um, some people call this time of year Advent. The king comes. But a lot of times if you think of a king coming, you think of a king coming in a demonstration of glory. You know, in ancient times, as they thought about in these kind of monarchical terms, you would think of a king approaching, and there's going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance, and some of it was going to be for that king to really show his kingness over his subjects, right? And in other words, part of the display would be something that you might be caught up in, but as, as the king would make his entrance wherever, 
part of what was going on there was that you could see a distinction between the king and you. There's the king and there's me. He's higher, I'm lower. He's in another category. What do you, what do you see with the coming of King Jesus? The king does come, but he comes in a way that we don't expect. And he comes in a way that doesn't impress until you, until you get the whole, until you see the whole thing. Um, what should you see in Jesus? You should see that God came near. That rather than somebody in his glory, just constantly showing his glory, he came and joined you in your plight. Emmanuel, God with us, right? Note the move. That Jesus is God the Son, eternal, so he's preexistent. There was never a time that Jesus didn't exist. He's not a created being. He's eternally God the Son. And so in preexistent glory, eternal glory, he leaves that station of glory with the Father. And why does he do that? He left that station for you and for me. He joined our team. And Galatians 4 says he did that so that he could redeem you, so he could win you, so that you could have a future with God that you had lost in the fall. So what do you see in Jesus? Let me give you two things. Number one, you should see somebody to believe in. Uh, John 3.16. Jesus was in this conversation with Nicodemus, a religious leader who's supposed to be an expert on all these things. It turns out that no matter who you are, uh, if you're somebody not named Jesus, you're really not an expert. You're somebody who can be transformed by grace. Uh, so, so Jesus is having to explain this to Nicodemus, and in John 3.16, many of you know it well, he says, God sent his son, God so loved the world that he sent his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, man's problem was that we needed a representative among us, but we didn't have anyone worthy, nor did we have any hope that we'd be able to produce one because of our fallen Adam. So what does Jesus do? Why should you believe in him? Well, one, like I, I said before, he changes your category. Romans 5.19, And Adam you fell, for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. But the other side of that is that your category could be changed so that represented by Jesus, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. How can somebody like you, with who you are and all the things that you've done and all the record of wrongs that you have acquired, built up over your lifetime, and by the way, the list keeps going, right? How could somebody like you be deemed righteous? Well, by a, a better representative. You categorically be seen as righteous because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you as your representative. How did he do that? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He stood in your place. Since he was one of us, he joined our team, he could represent us. Um, he could bear the punishment for our sins. Whether you want to call this vicarious atonement or substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it in this beautiful way. It says, for our sake. In other words, he did it for you. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how somebody like you becomes the righteousness of God. That's how somebody like me becomes the righteousness of God. Because of this great exchange of Jesus that was my place, and Jesus took my place to bear my sin so that I could bear his righteousness. 
That's grace. You don't get saved by being good. You get saved by Jesus' representation, by what he accomplished. Uh, why should you believe in him? Because he's the one mediator between God and man, which we need, uh, 1 Timothy 2.5. And he's the great high priest who can help you. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 and 16 says this, but I want you to think about this. Are you struggling right now? You've been tempted? Are you tired? Have you been rejected by somebody you love, by people around you? Have you been disappointed in life? Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know what it's like to be tired? So does Jesus. You know what it's like for the people closest to you to let you down? So does Jesus. Uh, you know what it's like to be tempted? Like, a, like being driven into the wilderness and having to face the elements on your own, in isolation, wondering if there's help. So does Jesus. So because of that, he, he, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He, he did what you didn't do and what I didn't do. He actually passed the test. And so he says, let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're going to have a time of need. You want mercy and help in that time of need? You want grace? Second thing, so, so what do you see in Jesus? What should you see in Jesus? You should see somebody to believe in. Someone unlike anyone else. The uniqueness of Jesus. The second thing is someone who loves you. Um, these two things are so important to put together because you have these, we, we, uh, we tend to be imbalanced, I think. You have people who think this through and they either want the emotive element, like I, I want to feel close to God, but I don't want to listen to the things he says. And we actually need to understand God well. If we're going to love, you have to know the person you love. Just think about human relationship. It's, it's, it's impossible to say to your spouse, I love you, but I don't really want to know you. Or to your child, I love you, but I don't really want to know you. But people tend to do that with God all the time. And so there's, there can be this emotive side. There can also be this intellectual side, like the, like the, the whole shooting match is just what we understand upstairs about who God is. But we need to know that that's not significant if it's not significant, significant if it doesn't uh, propel us into relationship and connection to and worship of God. Don't you see that what, what we find in Jesus is that we're loved. I'm going to give you four places and just listen to the testimony of Scripture. Say this over and over again. Galatians 2.20, Paul is talking about the way he understands his life now that Christ uh, has won him. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He loved me and he gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Romans 8.37, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, as the Father has loved me, stop there, think about how much has the Father loved the Son? How much did the, does the Father love Jesus? And Jesus makes this incredible statement. You know how the Father loves me, he says? As the fathers love me, I love you. 
You should see in Jesus someone who loves you. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to recount this. How, how do you know? How could you know that Jesus loves you? Because, I mean, in our experience, it's easy enough to say, right? We could say it in passing. Hey, I love you, and it not show up in the way we treat each other. By the way, just a little wisdom, a little moral resetting of the compass. Uh, love actually shows up in what you value and what you do. And so if you love somebody, it's going to show up in how you treat that somebody. And Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And then he went on and he laid down his life for his, his friends. Right? What should you see in Jesus? You should see someone to believe in and you should see someone who loves you. So at Advent or Christmas, whatever you call this time of year, it's a good time to remember what God has done for us and um, how God the Son joined our team. So I want to leave you with this kind of idea that what we find in Jesus is somebody who joined our team, and we're not the kind of team that you would want to join. We would be the epitome, the human race of a reclamation project. I remember um, when I was in fourth grade, halfway through my fourth grade year, my dad changed his job. And so we moved from Hominy, Oklahoma, where, you know, I was settled. I had my friends. I kind of knew the system and all that stuff. And we moved about 30 minutes away to Fairfax, Oklahoma, in Osage County. In new school, different kind of culture, different kind of town. And so halfway through, we're there, and I'm trying to kind of find my way, sort my way through school. And one of the things they did in Fairfax was they had, the way they did their grade school basketball team is they they picked a team to compete with the other towns, but before that, they did an intramural uh, kind of tournament from grades four through six, and they would divide up the teams, the PE teacher would, and we would all play each other, and then out of that, it was kind of a tryout to make the real team. And I was in fourth grade, and I hadn't played a lot of basketball and all that stuff, and so I went out for basketball because my dad told me, you're going to go out for basketball. And I hadn't practiced much, you know, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't dribbled much, and I hadn't shot much, and I wasn't a big kid, you know, skinny little kid. And when you're in fourth grade, the, you know, it's like a beach ball almost, but heavy. And so we had, I'm not kidding, so I want to put two things together. My intramural team did not lose one game. And aside from one player, we were easily the worst team assembled. I mean, we couldn't dribble, we couldn't shoot. We couldn't pass, but we had one kid on our team, a kid named Kenny McDonald. He was the best basketball player in, you know, in grade school, fourth through sixth. Most of the fourth graders didn't make it. You know, some of the fifth graders made it, and a lot of the sixth graders made it. Just developmentally, you were going to get better. But on our team, I mean, we were awful. You know, Kenny would pass us the ball, and he was this great leader. He would pass us the ball, you know, and sometimes he would shout so that, you know, he didn't hurt us. But he would pass the ball. I remember one time he made a long pass to me, and I wasn't looking. And as I started to turn, the ball hit me in the head, you know, and bounced off my head and out of bounds. Gave me a headache. It hurt, you know. I was trying not to cry there in front of everybody and all that. And he was a great leader. He got everybody involved. But the reason we won is because Kenny would, like, involve everybody, but at the end of it, he would just take over the game, right? Because he was the best basketball player in our school. There were other teams that, you know, from top to bottom were essentially better, but the difference was, you know, we had a champion, 
we had Kenny on our team. And so we won. I won even though I was horrible. The other players on my team won even though every one of them was horrible. We won because Kenny was on our team. He joined our team, you could say. That's just a little basketball team. Jesus joined our team of, I mean this from a spiritual standpoint, our team of losers. So because of your sin and because of your category, you have no way of winning. You just can't do that on your own. Remember, salvation has to come from the Lord. Spiritually, you just can't do it. Righteousness is not something you'll ever be able to accomplish on your own. If you're going to be righteousness, if you're going to be righteous, yours has to be a derived righteousness. It's going to have to come to you from some other source. And what Jesus did was he joined our team of misfits. He identified with us. God came near and he did everything necessary so that now we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Um, But unlike this little basketball team, it's forever, right? It's before God. You are who you are in the kingdom if you're a believer because of who Jesus is. Don't ever mistake that. Don't ever be, you know, it's great if you've been coming to church for a long time for years. But don't ever confuse where the righteousness comes from. Don't ever confuse where the standing comes from. You have one claim. It's a claim of grace. It's a claim rooted from first to last in the accomplishment of Jesus. You win because he joined your team. Because he went to the cross and he bore what was yours. So let me close by saying this. Steward the season. You know, we'll reflect on this uh, Christmas Eve at 6.30. But I'd tell you, believe. What you see in Jesus is someone to believe. uh, To believe in. Believe. Draw near. Repent. Worship. And let your worship rest on the one who matters. The one you can believe in. And the one who loves you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your good word. Thank you for a champion, not who uh, emerged from among us, but uh, who you sent to us. We thank you for Jesus, who became one of us to represent us, to live righteously, to be obedient to you in a way that we couldn't, to change our category, um, to bear our place on the cross, to bear our sin, so that we could bear his righteousness. Thank you for your great salvation that is all of grace. And may we celebrate that. I pray for those who are struggling with all kinds of things that people struggle with this time of year. That you give strength and comfort. Um, And that our joy would be the eternal joy that rests in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.